as they're going. We'll sort of refocus on, on Genesis 9 a bit here. And uh, we'll start by, by noting and by recognizing that Washington, D.C. generally lives and dies in four-year cycles. Right, the end of each cycle is sort of marked by a triumphal entry, isn't it? You see a picture on the screen there of the triumphal entry of sorts, a, per, a procession. You roll out the red carpet, you put your best suit on, you make fancy plans for dinner because the evil bad guys are gone and the new Messiah has arrived. Hope, prosperity, and joy begin their reign. And of course, there is the, there's the occasional curmudgeon see Senator Sanders there, but, <laughs> but in general, it's a joy-filled celebration that's marked by hope every four years. Today's sermon is titled, The Untriumphal Entry. Now, it gets you thinking that way, and I'll, I'll remind you, it's, next week isn't the triumphal entry. That's still two weeks away in preparation for Easter. But in Noah, we find what should be a triumphal entry. The whole world has been purged and purified through the flood. For the Aladdin lovers out there, it's like he's entering a whole new world, a dazzling place for you to see. The bad guys are gone, though. The unjust policies are thrown away. The toxic, toxic relationships have been removed. And yet this entry into the new world is anything but triumphal. And in this brief passage, just 11, 12 verses, we're going to see three critical truths that will transform each of our lives if we will heed them. Boy, isn't that always critical when you come to the Word of God? I know there's essential truth for my life here, and it will transform me if I will heed what it says. So let's, let's go back and pray together, and same thing I pray every week, that you'll have and I'll have eyes to see the truth of God's Word, ears to hear it, and a humble heart to receive it and change and heed the words of scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the opportunity to come before it, listen to it. We ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth from your word, ears to hear, and humble hearts to receive it and to change. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The untriumphal entry of Noah. Three critical truths that can transform your life. Here, I'll give them to you quickly, and then we'll walk through them. This is our outline. Truth one, you can fall. Truth two, sin enslaves. Truth number three, coverage is needed. You can fall, sin enslaves, coverage is needed. Look back at your copy of the scriptures. Point number one, truth number one, you can fall. Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. See, Noah's calling was to bring relief from the cursed toil of the ground. And he actually got started as they left the ark doing exactly what he was supposed to do. He got started on the right foot in verse 20. He began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. If you look back at your copy of God's word and back about two chapters, three chapters, four chapters actually, sorry. Chapter 5, verse 29, the end of that genealogy. I'll give you a second to turn there. 529, we read, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this Noah, shall bring us relief from our work 
and from the painful toil of our hands. So Noah gets started doing exactly what he's supposed to do, working the ground, cultivating it, farming it as he's supposed to. Things are going well, and obviously it takes a dark turn there pretty rapidly in verse 21 with his drunkenness, his nakedness, and the shame that came from it. But what I want you to pay close attention to is this. When is it that Noah fell into sin? When is that? One, it's after his greatest temptation has passed in building the ark in faith. 55 to 75 year long project being likely ridiculed and mocked by everyone on the face of the earth and yet he continues in faith as a righteous man, walking with God. He passed the greatest test he would face and later falls. He also falls after the wicked people have been removed. The world has been judged. All these people that had run from God and fled from him and rebelled against him, they've been judged. They're not there anymore. This is precisely where we would expect to find Noah's coronation on the new earth. You've passed your test. The bad guys are gone. Now let's enter into the kingdom, right? That's what you would expect to find. It's a a striking picture of recreation of sorts. There's a new Eden, a new clean world where God's people enter in with his covenant blessing to cultivate the land, to reflect and represent God. Supposed to be great. And yet Noah quickly gets drunk, falls into sin, and his nakedness is exposed. The literal language of the Hebrew there says not only that he was uncovered, but that he was so inebriated, so drunk, that he uncovered himself and more or less passed out in the living room. It's not a pretty picture of this man of God. And the clear purpose of this passage is to communicate that humanity is much the same after the flood as they were before the flood. To say that a fresh start isn't enough. To say that removing toxic relationships isn't enough. To say that the real problems out there are in my heart and they're in your heart. They're not in some other out there ether. And we're continually tempted to say that the real problems are out there in somebody else, in some other system, some other government. And Genesis 9 is saying, no, the real problems are right here in my heart and in yours. Now, it's important as we we read through that we notice that alcohol consumption is not really the main point of this passage. It's a point of it that needs to be talked about, but saying that all alcohol consumption is sinful is not the point of what's being said here. Right? The Bible speaks very even-handedly about the significant and incredible dangers of alcohol and also that it can be a good gift. Right? So, so you might look at this passage as one that clearly shows the, uh, the dangers In their significance, you might look at Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. My friends, if you're here and you are someone who enjoys alcohol and you receive that as a good gift from God, you would be wise to heed the warnings here and the dangers. Consider that God is wiser than you and there's likely more danger there than you are prone to see and recognize. 
But we would also read in the passage like Deuteronomy 14, the, the other side, this is the even-handedness of Scripture, where God says, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And so on the other side, if, if you're a teetotaler, you say, no, I, I don't partake at all. Well, that that's a, could be a wise choice. I'm not here to say you try and talk you into drinking by any chance, but just to say, hey, recognize that this can be received as a good gift as well and hear what the Bible says open-handedly on both sides, recognizing both the goodness of the gift and the significant dangers therein. So then, if reinstituting the prohibition isn't the main point, what is the main point? Well, I think there's probably a twofold point to the story. First and most narrowly, that alcohol abuse, alcohol abuse leads to drunkenness, nakedness, and shame. Don't miss that. But secondly, and more generally, I mean to say more significantly, that finding more joy in God's gifts than God as the giver can overtake any person in any season of life. Let me say that again. Finding more joy in God's gifts than God as the giver can overtake any person in any season of life. And somewhere along the lines, Noah began enjoying God's gifts more than God himself. The Bible calls this idolatry where we enjoy God's presence, his P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, his presence more than his presence, his P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E. We want his stuff more than him, the gifts more than the giver. We seek his hand of blessing, his hand of guidance more than his face. This is idolatry, to love the secondary thing more than the primary thing. So friend, I wonder, I ask you this morning, where do you enjoy God's gifts more than God himself? It's not wrong to enjoy the gifts. They're given for your enjoyment. Just rightly enjoy them with him as the center, not the gifts at the center. Jeremiah 2 is a really helpful little passage in seeing this from the prophet Jeremiah. He writes, For my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I'm going to turn away from God himself as the giver and seek the gifts on my own terms. And when I do that, I find a version of the gift that can't hold water. It can't do what it's supposed to do. When we do this, when we enjoy the gifts more than the giver, we ask those gifts to do what only the giver can do. We ask a relationship or a child or a vacation or a beverage to bring deep and lasting joy. We ask those things to be our true source of comfort, to do what only God can do. And friend, if it can happen to Noah... After passing his greatest test and after all the wickedness from the world being removed, do you know who else it can happen to? You. Any season of life, any person. It is stunningly easy to idolize God's gifts and love them more than him. The good gift of a job that you love and it brings satisfaction to you. The good gift of friends 
the good gift of family, the good gift of wealth, the good gift of educational degrees. Any of these we can turn to and seek more joy in them than them as a gift from God. For all of us then, in this temptation, we know that Noah never got past it. That means that it's impossible for us to arrive. You never graduate from needing God's grace to see him as better than even his best gifts. Do you recognize that? To see God as better than the gifts requires his grace. There are no exemptions here. There's no years of following Jesus that move you past this. No amount of Bible lessons taught, hours served in the nursery, dollars given to missions. You never move past this temptation. But the reality is this. I've never met a Christian who says they've spiritually arrived. I've never met somebody who says that. Like Most people just aren't stupid enough to say something like that. Like, who among us would would suggest something like that? But I do know that most people, and I completely include myself in this, are tempted every single day to live in the power of their own strength. Every single day. And when we do that, we functionally say that we are grace graduates. And it's absolutely critical that I correct this error in my life and you correct it in yours. We never ever graduate from our need for daily transforming grace, to see God as the greatest gift and any of his secondary gifts as lesser than that. But there's a subtle and seductive power of indwelling sin in our lives. And so that means that until we reach eternity, we'll never outgrow the need for spirit-empowered, grace-based living and denial of ourselves. You never move past that. And the moment that you start to think that you have is when you fall. The moment, like Noah, you start to enjoy the gifts more than the giver is where you've plunged deep into sin and you don't even realize it. You say, how did I end up drunk, naked, passed out in the living room? Because you lost sight of the fact that you never graduate from the need for grace. Here's how 1 Corinthians 10 would say it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. What's the conclusion? Flee from idolatry. It reminds me of this Christmas, I got uh, some magnetic collar stays. So if you're not familiar, it's little piece of plastic with a magnet on the end, you stick it in your collar, and then there's another magnet you stick inside that's supposed to help your collar stay in the right place, not flap all over the spot. These little magnets are tiny, right? And so, um, so, I, so I get the thing out of the package, and I, I'm, I'm messing around with it, trying to figure out how it works, and I accidentally link the two magnets together. And then I can't get them separated. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, they're small, they're really strong, and I had to get Emily to help me on it. And what I quickly realized was the best way to avoid that problem was to keep them separated. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. Flee idolatry. Keep an eye out for the problems and steer clear. Because if you wait till it gets stuck together, you're in bed with this thing or that thing, it's a heck of a lot harder to get it separated than if you just would have taken some precautionary steps to flee it in the first place. So what does it look like specifically to proactively 
flee from the darkness and to seek the light. I was talking to Pastor Drew about this this past week, and he's right in what he said. He said, in real estate, it's location, location, location. In fleeing idolatry, it's confession, confession, confession. Soon as I feel it, confess it to God. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, go to those all the time. And I don't just confess it to God, I confess it to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't wait until I've fallen. I tell them on the front end, like, hey, I'm experiencing some temptation here. Like, I sense my heart wanting to love this thing more than Jesus. Would you pray for me this week? I heard a pastor say it's all about keeping short accounts with God. I don't let that sin linger. I would love to see a a, a post-service conversation. I pray this will happen among our church, that as you're gathering and you're talking and you're mocking Purdue's basketball team, and I I don't have to pray for that. That just happens on its own. Um, No, I pray that in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of that conversation, you're together and you say, man, you know what? Spring break, we're taking off for a couple of days. And I'm tempted to put way more hope in this little quick journey out than I am in the God who would give us this journey. Would you pray for me that even as we're enjoying God's good gifts, that I would enjoy him more and not put more stock in this thing? A trusted friend, you're not doing this with 100 people. You're not doing it with 10 people probably. But there's one or two trusted friends you can. Or you look ahead at your week, you say, man, I know that on Wednesday morning, On Wednesday morning, I'm going to be so tempted to complain because I'm going to be in a meeting with somebody that drives me crazy. And when I complain about them, I functionally say that if they weren't there, I would have all the joy I need. So I complain about it. So I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Wednesday's meeting's at 10.15. Pray for me that I will recognize there's more joy in Christ than there is in the removal of this frustration. And then stop and pray together. Like, just super practical level. Like, that's growing through relationships. Confess it to God. Confess it to others. We pray for each other and then strive to walk in holiness, recognizing that if Noah could fall, so can you. So don't get caught sleeping behind the wheel, but get out in front of these things and pursue holiness together. That's the first point. You can fall. Second point, sin enslaves. Sin enslaves. Look back at your copy of God's word, starting in verse 22, and then we'll skip down to 24. We read, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had said to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. What's the sin here? Maybe that's the thing we should start with. You read that, what exactly happened? Ham sins by looking on his father's nakedness, by dishonoring him. He tells his brothers, it appears he made some kind of a mockery of his dad. Now, there, there is a possibility. Some would say there was a, maybe a homosexual lust of some sort or even a deed. I don't think that's likely there in the passage. What's more probable is that Ham lingers 
as he looks at Noah's folly. He dishonors him. Maybe he sees a chance to make himself look better. I see somebody doing something really stupid. I take, make sure I see exactly what they're doing so I can go tell somebody else, can you believe what he did? The old man just lost it over there. And he used to tell me I drank too much. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing, but there's some aspect of dishonoring his dad, looking, lingering, making a mockery. What we know across the whole of Scripture is that the Bible makes a really big deal of looking with a longing eye. Lot's wife, Genesis 19, fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, looks back longing for what was there, immediately dies. 1 Samuel 6, all these men of Israel look longingly at the ark of the Lord, 70 are killed on the spot, looking longingly at that which they're not supposed to have. Takes me back to the old kids' song. Sometimes we never graduate from those, do we? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. The reality is we tend to, in our culture, excuse lustful looking so long as someone's not acted on it. Don't we? We don't t- tend to take Jesus' words quite so seriously about a lustful look. Now, it's, it's important that we recognize it's, it's not a sin to be tempted. Hear me there. It's not a sin to see something the first time. That's not sinful. It is a sin to linger, to look twice, to desire it, to lust after it. And sometimes we know where we're going to see things. And we make a plan so that we can at least be in the vicinity and catch a look. I only saw it. Yes, but you made plans to be there so you could see it. Right, so, so, so heed carefully these words. It's important what we see and what we linger on and what we desire. You can apply that to sexual temptation, but there's a million other things that you could apply that to as well. Right, so, so don't get narrow tunnel vision here. You can drive by the favorite neighborhood and, and look longingly at those houses that are a little nicer than yours, wishing you had one of those. Right, you can do this with, with any temptation. So what, what's the curse? We talked about the sin of looking desirously, longingly, making a mockery of the sin. What's the curse? Well, let me start with what it's not and then get to what it is because there's a couple of ways that this has been historically misunderstood by Christians. We'll talk about two of those and then get to what it actually is. The first one is this. The curse isn't pronounced on Ham and it's not pronounced even on all of his offspring. Only one son is cursed. Go back to verse 25. Look back with me. Noah says, cursed be Canaan one of Ham's sons. Noah saw the same wickedness of Ham in his son Canaan and knew that that same wickedness would continue. Here there's a contrast. We've been saying this week over week between the godly seed of the woman and the wicked seed of the servant. One recognizes nakedness, shame, guilt, and the need to cover it. The other celebrates the nakedness and seeks more. That's what Canaan would do. So in Leviticus 18, when Canaan is described, there's, uh, in Leviticus 18, 24 times is the word seeking nakedness, uh, seeking nakedness used to describe Canaan, Leviticus 18. In other words, the sin that Ham had committed is continued and exaggerated in his son. And Noah saw in Canaan the same sin of the father, and the curse came there. The point then 
is that it's not who your dad is or isn't that results in the curse. It's not if you're a good person or a bad person, but what you do with your badness. You seek to cover it in the right way, not to cover it up, but to have it covered by Christ. That's the first thing that it's not. It's not a curse directly on Ham, but on his one particular son because he would continue in his wickedness. Secondly, the curse on Ham's descendants didn't have to do with skin color. It's not what it was about. Right? Anytime you start to bring up race in church, everybody holds their breath. It's just important that we recognize that this has been applied as a biblical justification for slavery through the years. Right? One president of a uh, prominent Baptist denomination said the following. I think it's on the screen. This is, uh, and just for context here, guys, this is like 150, 200 years ago. So I don't cite this to make you feel bad, to say you ought to be guilty about something, but just to recognize this has been a historical misunderstanding of this passage. Here's what uh, the president of this denomination said. From Ham were descended the nations that occupied the land of Canaan and those that now constitute the African or Negro race. Their inheritance, according to prophecy, has been and will continue to be slavery. So long as we have the Bible, we expect to maintain it. It's a sick, twisted distortion of Scripture. I read an article this week where a guy said, if that's what you mean by the curse of Ham, then damn the curse of Ham. And I say, amen. It's what 1 Timothy 4 would call the teachings of demons. As these, these wicked beliefs must be condemned in the strongest of terms. All people are made in the image of God. They are the crown of creation. They bear his image. And yes, we see fallenness in all humans, but before you see the fallenness of mankind, remember the image of God precedes that in Genesis 1 and 2. So we saw two things the curse isn't that has been historically taught and misunderstood, but what precisely is the curse? Let's get, get to that answer here. The curse on the descendants of Ham, on Canaan, is ongoing enslavement due to ongoing sin. Because they would continue pursuing nakedness, basically at all cost, they would be enslaved by the nations around them. God would judge them for their sin. Commentator Alan Ross said it this way, being enslaved by their vices, the Canaanites were to be enslaved by others. Pretty clear reading there. Here's the connection. How the principle that they saw of continuing to pursue their vices would lead to more enslavement. Here's how this applies to my life, to your life. Sin often looks attractive but it always ends up enslaving you. If it didn't look attractive, you wouldn't do it, right? But it never delivers on its promises. It's like, it's like a kid who sneaks into the pantry and grabs a chocolate knowing they're not supposed to have it, and they're looking around real quick, like, is mom, dad around, or my siblings gonna tell on me? And they quickly run up to their room, they close the door and lock it, then they hide in their closet, they open it up, and they didn't realize that they grabbed unsweetened chocolate, they think they're about to have the treat they want, and they, oh, oh, what happened? That's how sin works. It looks good in the moment, and it can never fulfill on its promises. But unlike unsweetened chocolate, 
Sin keeps luring you back for more, and somehow you think that unsweetened chocolate is still the way to go. Sometimes you've seen people in cycles of sin, and you're like, what are you doing? Sin makes you stupid. This is irrational. This makes no sense. This is part of the reason that you cannot reduce sin to a psychological problem. It's by definition irrational. It's a spiritual battle that's being waged. How does this work in our lives? How does does sin promise something it can't deliver and yet enslave us back to more and more? Gossip promises that if you can get something off your chest, you'll feel better. There's a joy in feeling better about these things. But once you get it off your chest, you say it, you start sharing the juicy news, you become enslaved to sharing more and more things, whether or not they're true, much less helpful, because people are coming back. Have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you've got to have something to say. Grumbling, it promises refreshment by sort of clearing the air, right? But once you go down that path, you create a fire that needs more wood, You think you'll feel better. You end up feeling bad about complaining. But what you've done is you've set your selfish desires, your thoughts, and they're driving your words. And the more you think about what you want, the more you complain that you don't have it. You become enslaved to speaking about what you want and thinking about what you want rather than denying yourself. Sexual sin promises intimacy. It promises escape from stressors. But once you go there, you become enslaved to the darkness where you show up as a consumer rather than a self-sacrificing lover. You see this pattern over and over and over in every area of sin. It always enslaves, never promises what it delivers. Say it this way, it's a little bit different. Sin always costs you more than you intended to pay, keeps you longer than you planned to stay, and leaves deeper scars than you ever thought possible. It always costs you more than you plan to pay. It always keeps you longer than you planned to stay. And it always creates scars that are deeper than you thought possible. So see it on the front end and flee idolatry. The reality is this, Jesus didn't die so that any of us could manage our sin. He didn't die so we could keep it in the kennel, nice and safe, or on a leash where we can play with it in the afternoon when it's convenient and then go to work and do our thing, or even in a fenced-in yard. No, Jesus died so that you would put sin to death, not so that you would manage it. Romans 8, 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Matthew 5, what's Jesus say? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It stinks to lose an eye or a hand, but it's better to enter heaven a little maimed than it is to be completely enslaved by sin. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh. Be proactive. What does this look like? How do I, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh? Romans 8. Am I actually supposed to rip my eyeball out, actually cut my hand off? What does it mean to make no provision for the flesh? Four C's I want to give you real quick, and these will not be long. Number one, confess. We already said that. Confess to God, confess to others. Make a regular habit of confessing. That's how I step free, break free from the enslaving power of sin. 
Second C, chase. Chase it to the root. About six, seven years ago, we got termites at our house. Bad news, right? It's not merely a matter of telling somebody, hey, we got termites. (laughs) Gonna have to do more than that. So what do you do? You put in those little poison pills, bury them in the ground, and then the termites come and they eat it, it tastes like candy, and they take it back to the root, to the nest where it can be killed. So by chasing it to the root, what I'm saying is I'm saying with a brother that I've confessed to, hey, I'm tempted in this way, I'm trying to figure out what's underneath the sin. My sin is never just an action I do, there's a desire underneath it, there's a motive underneath it. Help me see what the root is. So I confess to God and others, Second C, I chase it to the root. Third C, I curb it. I put up fences. So I'm not going to go to that place. I'm going to get an internet filter on this part, uh, on, on this device, or all of my devices. I'm not going to go to that lunch with those people because I know that's going to be bad for my spirituality. I'm not going to walk with Jesus and love him more if I'm around those people. They're not the problem, I'm the problem but I gotta build some fences here to protect me from that. Confess, chase to the root, curb it, build fences. Fourth, come back to the gospel. Come back to the gospel. Because if you try and live the Christian life of saying, hey, I can tell somebody about it, I can look into my desires and see what's underneath it and build some fences, Apart from the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will not put sin to death. You simply won't. There's no other way to get it. Your piddly little internet filter won't do jack. It's not hard to get around the fences we build. They help us as a bumper guard of sorts, but you can still roll a gutter ball if you're not changed on the inside by Jesus. That's why we sing that famous song. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So I'm confessing. I'm chasing it to the root, seeing what's underneath. I'm curbing it, but I'm coming back to the gospel, looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for me on the cross, seeing that that is way better than anything this present temptation offers me. And that's how the power of sin is broken. You come back to the gospel day after day after day. It's not just, oh, I know somebody who needs to believe the gospel. Yeah, I know them too. It's me. You never move past it. You can fall. That's the first point. Second point, sin enslaves. Third point. Third point, coverage is needed. Verse 23, we read, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backwards. And they did not see their father's nakedness. Down to verse 26, Noah says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Boy, what a radically different response we see from the godly seed of the woman as opposed to the wicked seed of the serpent. They are aware of the nakedness, but choose to not look on it, to not linger. In fact, the passage goes way out of the way to tell us they attached a sheet to their shoulder, they walked backwards, they didn't look, 
Like all that repetition there is driving home the point, right? They took proactive steps to recognize this needs to be covered. And by covered, hear me clearly, we're not saying covering up sin, we're not saying hiding sin, we're not saying concealing sin, no, we're saying dealing with sin. That's what's meant there. There's imagery here of Genesis 3 overlaid, where Adam and Eve sin, their nakedness is exposed, they feel the shame, and they seek coverings for it. But Adam and Eve, they tried to create their own covering, didn't they? And it didn't work. They needed God to cover it for them. It requires us to say then, this sin isn't good, it needs to be covered, and I can't cover it myself. This isn't good, it needs covered, I can't cover it myself. And for the one who deals with their sin, a blessing is pronounced. Blessing on Shem, blessing on Japheth. It's interesting, in the passage through the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh is used, telling us about the heart of Shem and of Japheth, that they were coming saying, Lord, you cover this. They knew they couldn't do it on their own. They were already in that covenant relationship with God. There's overtones of Psalm 32.1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, is what David would say. I want to take it to you, God, and allow you to cover it. That's where the blessing is. And the danger for us here in saying that sin needs to be covered is that we could see sin as a bad behavior to be reformed. It is that, but it's much more than that. It runs much deeper. You see, in the short run, Ham's descendants didn't cover their sin. They did become enslaved by surrounding nations, right? It was not dealt with, and it became a major problem. But in the long run, this is so fascinating, Isaiah 19, we're told that Ham and Shem and Japheth, all their descendants would worship together. It's a strange plot twist, isn't it? You would not expect that. One was supposed to be blessed, one was supposed to be cursed. How did that happen? Because Ham's descendants recognized their sins, that they needed to be covered, and not only covered, but removed. You see, in the Old Testament, we get a picture of sin being covered. Right, so Adam and Eve, sin being covered. Noah, sin being covered. Even the sacrificial system didn't fully deal with sins. It covered them. That's why this afternoon, look up Romans 3.25, 3.26, somewhere in there. It says that God passed over former sins. But now that Jesus had come, they were fully dealt with. What does it mean that he passed over them? They were covered for a time, but not fully removed. And so Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, yes, I will cover your sin, but I will fully remove it as well. It's what theologians call propitiation and expiation. Don't get hung up on the terms. Think of it this way. You're out in a crazy rainstorm. Propitiation is you have the greatest umbrella ever constructed shielding you. Jesus is the umbrella. He takes the wrath of God so you don't. Sins are covered. But you're still in a rainstorm. Expiation, the full removal of your sins, is he ushers in an 80 degree sunny day. I was covered from your wrath coming down. Propitiation it's been fully removed and you've ushered in this gloriously beautiful day where there is no more sin anymore. That's what you need. Not just a coverage of sin, but a removal of sin. So in kind of seeing that the whole picture here that sin needs to be dealt with, needs to be covered and fully removed, 
Let's sort of zoom out a bit on the whole story, starting to, to wind down a bit here. You can hear a message like Noah's untriumphal entry into this new world. You could hear it, and you can respond like we started at the beginning with the politicians and say, oh good, I won't be like him, I'll do better. You can, like Gandhi, commit to be the change. You can, like Michael Jackson, say, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. Right? You, could, you could go any of those routes. And changing your ways is good. You should do that. But it's not enough. You need a lot more than changed ways of external behavior modification. We're not after that. We're at internal transformation. Not just make me a better person, make me a new person, Jesus. And what Noah's untriumphal entry tells all of us is that we need a new heart because moving past one season of temptation or moving past bad people in our lives doesn't liberate us from the sin in our own lives. You need more than just an external change. You need a new heart. He's proof, Noah is, that a fresh start isn't enough, that removing the source of temptation isn't enough, that removing toxic people isn't enough. No, his life serves as an evidence, and if we're honest with ourselves, it serves as a warning that external changes will never bring transformation. They never will. So point one, yes, you can fall. That means that you're vulnerable. And point two, yes, sin enslaves. It is more dangerous than you even think right now, having heard a sermon about it. And yes, it needs to be covered, and no moral improvement plan can actually do that. Better friends can't, better church can't, better job can't, better kids can't. No, Jesus came and he died so that your sin would die. And not just that it would die, but he could put a new heart within you. He rose to new life to give you new life. So as we start to wrap up here, we're gonna go to communion in a second, but what I want you to do at communion is look to Jesus See him in your mind's eye on the cross, dying to sin so that your sin will die. And imagine the empty tomb and him being raised to new life so that you can have new life. Recognizing, yes, I could fall. Yes, sin does enslave, but it has been covered if I'll run to Jesus. And celebrate that. Man, you might be here, you might be here just feeling beat down by sin ashamed of the guilt that's welling up inside of you. Just take a minute as you think of Jesus and reflect and celebrate that he died so that your sin could die. Take it to him. Confess it to him. And if you're a Christian, after that, take communion. And if not, don't take communion, but ask him to save you for the very first time. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you would come and die for us, not merely to cover our sins, but to remove them. We confess that we are frail, fallen, vulnerable humans. We can fall, even this afternoon. And we often underestimate the devastating enslavement of sin. 
So we ask for your strength. We ask for your grace that we would walk in newness of life, not by our own power, not thinking it's some how to be a better Christian plan, but by coming back to the transforming power of the gospel, recognize that we never graduate from grace. May we run to you this afternoon, right now, and find mercy at the cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.